Flip Pallet and his show Walker's K Chronicles not only burned the stories into the memory of film, but lit a fire in my belly to go see what he was doing with those big fish on light tackle. And with that, he and his story changed my life. Today, we had a chance to visit with Flip in his garage in Titusville, Florida. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Flip, thank you for allowing us to come into your world. I, I know it's a it's a very protective world. You're not you're a special person, and you you really have you only allow so many people into your world. And I get that you've been around, and, and, and it's a pretty specific thing as to what you like and dislike. And I I'm really honored that you've allowed us to come into your world. And it's your world too. You you wouldn't recognize those things if it wasn't. There, there's an aura about you, like you fill the room. Could be gas at my yeah. age. <laughs> but I'm serious. Or your airboat. <laughs> <laughs> and it's special to be around you. Too kind. It's very deceiving when you drive into your, your, your property here. You go through a guard gate, but yet when you come down your driveway, this is a scene out of a Clyde Butcher photograph. <laughs> it's beyond my word, words. Um, how would you describe where you live? We live in a, in a typical Florida oak and cabbage palm hammock. And it was important to us to live in a place like this because... When we came here almost 30 years ago, after Hurricane Andrew, the place that we left, Homestead, was devastated to the point where there was not a tree. We had spent, Diane and I had spent endless hours at our Homestead house bringing trees from the Everglades to create little hammocks and ponds and things at our Homestead house. All of that was destroyed by the hurricane. So when we moved from Homestead, it was important to us to be in a place that had trees. And so we really built this house in this hammock without destroying any trees. We, we left everything here. And so we're in this hammock. 30 or 40 yards west of here is a creek that I can pull a canoe into and I can pull through woods just like this all the way to the St. John's River Marsh. Wow, it's a sanctuary. 
It is. It is. It's it's hard to believe that, well, when we moved here, it wasn't a neighborhood. It's become one. But we've, you know, we're sort of isolated down here in this hammock. Nobody nobody comes. Nobody bothers us. A hundred yards from here, you would never realize this is available and this is here. That's right. And this is you. That's right. That's right. It's funny. When I called uh, recently, I, I asked you, I said, so Flip, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, what's happening? You said that you're sitting in your Yeti chair looking at your backyard, but you mentioned it. I'm looking at the woods, having a cocktail, trying to figure out what kind of mischief I'm going to get into tomorrow. <laughs> uh, what is your life like now? I sharpen a lot of things. <laughs> Hooks and arrows and bullet points. And I'm always happening when I'm happiest when I'm sharpening something or cleaning something. Right. Because Chico, I, I spoke to some of your buddies, you know, prior coming up here, you know, you're great friends. And Chico and Rob Fordyce, too, said that you're the ultimate outdoorsman. Well, I don't know about that, but it it certainly calls to me yeah. um, and always has. I mean, I never I never had interest in sports and I never knew who the sportsmen were and the biggest hitters and whatever it just never was was part of my stream of consciousness it was i mean i i remember more than anything else sitting in elementary school classes looking out the window at birds and wishing that i was out there uh, school was always terribly difficult for me <clears throat> not because um of the school, it was because I didn't want to be there. Right. And I finished school because my parents wanted me to. It meant a lot to them. It meant nothing to me. I wish I could have those college years back uh, and do something really cool with them. What would you do differently? I don't know. I might have uh, discovered girls much earlier. <laughs> uh, or I might have gone to Europe and hitchhiked around and or I may have gone to the to the Colorado Rockies and But interestingly enough, you said your number one rule, which I've I've found, um, was that it's most important is to follow your heart. And it appears as though you have done that. Oh I have. I have. I have, with the exception of a few little detours that were important to people that were important to me, uh, family. Uh and so I I spent misguided years working in corporate situations, which was like like elementary school. I'd look out the window and wish I was was out there. And then it, at some point, I I came to the full and certain realization that uh, life has a finish line. Right. And I was going backwards. But, you know, I think, too, Flip, that we all go through those early years where we're not really understanding who we are and what our voices are. What is your heart, listening to your heart? Because a lot of times we have a head involved. So are we listening to our conscious? Are we listening to our heart? But we're not really sure until you get to the point that you've got some experience and some mileage. So, yeah, those were the years that we all went through, and it was painful, but there was no way out because we didn't know the way out. Right. 
That's exactly right. You have to find that. And there's a price for that, as there should be. Um, but when you break through the veil... Uh, and quite clear. Clarity exists. Uh, you realize this is what I was made for. This is where I belong. And this is where I'll stay to the finish line. <clears throat> and and uh, just along those lines, there is a point at which you clearly realize that you're closer to the end than you are to the beginning. And so then every moment becomes precious. I mean, sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and look at the clock and say, you know, what am I doing here? I could be doing something right now. Uh, and you realize that there are only so many moments left, so many, well, I should say so many vital moments left. And by vital, I mean those moments that you can spend on a polling tower, polling, pushing a skiff into the wind, uh, that comes to an end. How many, how many moments are there left that you can walk up a hillside at nine or 10,000 feet and do your thing there? Those moments come to an end. And I don't look forward to the time when all I can do is sit around and reflect and remember, I really don't look forward to that. I look forward to those vital moments uh, that I just described and many other things as well. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, uh, it, it was so clear to me this past year when we lost Lefty. Um, and I remember because I spent so much time with Lefty, I, I remember when he couldn't poll anymore. Uh, and I remember when he couldn't stand on the front deck of a skiff anymore. And I remember how sad, it wasn't sad for him. I mean, he seemed to deal with it marvelously. Right. It was sad for me. Um, because when vitality goes, it's, you know, you're at the end of the trail. Does that give you any sort of anxiousness? Not not yet. Uh, you're turning 77 here soon. Yeah, it doesn't yet because I'm still vital. Um, I still train uh, every day for the summer, which is tons of walking uh, for me. <clears throat> I spend the whole summer in the Rockies fishing remote meadow streams. That's my deal. I don't want to see drift boats, and I don't want to see freestone streams, and I don't want to see people. So I hike to very, very remote, small, but hugely productive streams. Uh, and it's physical. I mean, it's very physical. And then it all winds up in that first week of elk season in September. Um, and then I quit the Rockies for Texas. But I don't feel any anxiety about about my age at this point. I know it's I know it's on the horizon. Mm -hmm. um, and in particularly reflexive moments, reflective moments, I think about it, I guess. But I'm not anxious. Yeah, I'm still I'm still, still doing it. Yeah. No, there's still too many things in the headlights. 
are you becoming more and more reclusive possibly? I mean, I know you've always liked to be alone. Um, I still have a, a pretty active small circle of, of folks that um, like-minded folks uh, that I mix around with. And I still do a number of uh, appearances every year uh, at fishing clubs and certain shows. And, and I do hosted trips where I take small groups, a dozen people, to interesting locations uh, around the world, normally fishing situations. Uh, I'm just returning last week from Texas uh, with a redfish group. Um, and so I'm, I'm still active in that. And so to that point or to that extent, I still see other humanoids from time to time. <laughs> I think I was watching a short Yeti film and you said there are things that get said in the skiff that don't get said in a confession. And I think that's a, it's a very true statement and it's funny, but you know, the, the bonds and the relationships that get formed on the water and on a 16 foot skiff are just irreplaceable. I mean, I'm, I'm closer to some of my fishing pals than I am with the rest of my family. I hate, I hate to say that, but there's just something there that it's special. Well, I think that the, the, the glue is the common interest that brought you to that small 16 foot skiff with that other person. Right. Uh, I mean, that's the kindling that creates the fire and where the fire goes depends a lot on on the alchemy or the chemistry of the two or three people that are in that boat, usually two. And I guided for a long number of years, so I know exactly what you're speaking about. I mean, I, I had friends that, customers that became more than friends. That relationship does transcend friendship because... There's no casual aspect to it. I mean, you have come together in that boat because of a passion in the first place. It wasn't that you met somebody at a party and he was interested in billiards. and No, you guys got to a fishing destination and then you were transported into a 16-foot skiff where life is focused like a laser beam into that skiff. Sure. And so, uh, and it's funny, you'll, you'll know what I'm, what I'm talking about here, but during the day in a skiff where that chemistry exists, the boat gets bigger and smaller depending on what's going on in the boat at that time. And sometimes it gets Really small. Really small. Yeah. Like you right. want to jump out? <laughs> Sometimes it gets really small. Uh, painfully small. But it's a good pain. And, and you know, the, uh, the opposite that can happen too. I mean, you can find yourself in a skiff with somebody where that chemistry doesn't happen. And you can't wait to hit the dock at the right. end of the sure. day. But uh, that's the exception to the rule. And those fierce friendships... Uh, that develop are the ones that last the rest of your life. I mean, they don't, they don't come and go. They, they stick. They get stronger. They stick. One of the things that Nikki mentioned is your aura, your sense of peace. 
uh, talking to a great friend of yours, Rob, Robbie Fordyce, he was saying the other day, he said, Flip goes through life as if he's pulling. His pacing is more like pulling in that you don't miss a thing. Um, where did that come from? Were you always like that, even as a child? I've always been quiet. Um, and with regard to polling, I know that I have polled much further in my life than I have walked. Um, so I think polling trains you for a lot of good things in life, I think. Uh, and certainly it trains you to look around and be observant. I think the people that go through life being pulled by a trolling motor miss a lot of things. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I just, I think a lot of it is just the way you are, you know? Yeah. Uh, and you gravitate to other people that are that way. I mean, I really don't want to be in the company of people that are running so fast. That they're not seeing the things that I'm seeing. Yeah. Um, and conversely, I'm not seeing the things that are pulling them at that speed. I don't see those things or understand them or want to. Um, and so you gravitate to the people that are, that are like you are. Mm -hmm. And it's not shocking to me that Rob would say something like that about me because I would say that about him. Sure. Do you, uh, do you meditate? Um, not in any formal sense. Uh, but I spend a lot of contemplative time. Sure. What does this uh, airboat mean to you? We've seen you in the videos ripping across, you know, the, you know, the Everglades in this airboat. And we're sitting in your garage. You've got, you know, your stick bows and, and arrows. What does this boat represent? And, and I know that, that Steve Huff recently was talking about leaving the dock. And he said when he put the throttle down, it was a sense of freedom. It happens even before that. I mean, and I know it does for Steve, too, because... He's been a friend for, God, I mean, I can't remember. I can't remember not knowing Steve. I mean, I just, but when you put your hand on the dock piling and push the boat away from the skiff, uh, skiff away from the dock, that's when it begins. Uh, and I guarantee you that if you pull Steve Huff's skiff apart, you won't find speakers and music and those are the things that he's pushing away from when he leaves the dock and this airboat represents the same thing for me uh, and I have skiffs and I push away from the dock and it's the same but the airboat exposes a layer of Florida that you could not see or appreciate otherwise. You would never know that these places are there unless you went there in an airboat. They're just simply not accessible. And as it turns out, they're some of the, they are some of the wildest and the most inaccessible and mysterious places in the state of Florida. And so without this boat, Seriously, you could have all my other boats before you could hook up to this one. That's your pride and joy. It, it is. It just lets me go to the places where I can be most contemplative and sit for hours 
one of my favorite things to do in winter, because the marsh is so close to me here, is in this boat, I can be probably in 30 or 40 minutes, I can be sitting in a place on the marsh, watching the edge of an island, a tree island. And I can go there at three o'clock in the afternoon. I can sit in the airboat. I can do email, which has become a significant part of my life. I mean, it's, it's how I conduct business and how I conduct communications. And I guess we all do. But I can sit there in the airboat and actually do that while I watch the edge, the long edge of a tree island. And if I see a deer or a hog, um, I can get out of the airboat and make a stalk uh, or just simply sit and watch. Uh, and I can do that until sundown. And it's a calm, reflective time that can also turn into a hunt at a moment's notice. Um, and so without the airboat, I wouldn't be able to do that. But you know what's really crazy, Flip? I don't. That's almost sacrilegious. It's, it's such a dichotomy that here you are out there on the verge of a stock in the middle of nowhere in your airboat, but yet you're emailing. <laughs> <laughs> I would never imagine that that would be a part of that e equation. Well, I might be drinking a glass of rum also. <laughs> That's how you got the email. It's 2019. <laughs> so let's take it back 50, 60 years ago when you were first, not you were first, but when you were very um, divulged in fishing the Everglades in Florida Bay. Did you have a mentor at all or was Herman yeah. or... You know, my dad um, was a World War II guy, and when he came back from the war, it was really the first time that middle-class America had a chance to get a mortgage loan or an automobile loan. Those things didn't exist prior to World War II. And so when he came back from the war, I had been born during the war, and when he came back, he was a full-time dad trying to keep up and trying to support a family and find his way in, in a brand-new America. Um, and so he didn't have time to be a teacher of the outdoors. Not that he knew the outdoors anyway. He had no time for those sorts of things. Although he was a great dad, he was not my pal. Mm -hmm. We didn't go hunting together. We didn't go fishing together. We didn't do anything together outside what we did as a family. Um, and we had a family vacation where we could go on a car trip or something like that. I mean, he was a great dad. He was a great father. But, he was a but... great dad, but he was never a pal. He didn't have time and he didn't have... He was, he was busy providing. And in those times, there wasn't a lot of leisure time for a man like that. And there was not, certainly, a lot of disposable income. And so he was a provider. And so I had to look elsewhere to find the things that were in my heart even then. Um, because I just wanted to be outside. And there are always others, and usually older uh, than yourself, uh, who have already arrived 
where you're trying to get. And I was able to, to pick them out. And um, they, they provided a, a wonderful template uh, for the journey. Uh, probably the most significant of those people was a man by the name of Pete Peacock. I don't know if you remember Pete. I don't. He was a wonderful outdoorsman um, and a glades man. And we lived on the edge of the Everglades. And so the Everglades and the Keys and Biscayne Bay, those were... Accessible. Those were the places that we... And Pete knew all those places. And Pete was an airboater. Pete was a fanatic airboater who had a... God, he had a camp deep in the Big Cypress Swamp. And you had to get there by airboat most of the way, and then you had to run the airboat over the top of a big 40-foot levee and over a road on top of the levee and then down the other side of the levee into the swamp and then work your way with the airboat through the cypress until you came to a little pond where he kept the buggy. <laughs> and then you would leave the airboat and get in the buggy and take about a 30 or 40 minute buggy ride to his camp. And I mean, it was, uh, it was there that I learned about turkeys. Um, and hunting deer in the swamps. And I mean, Pete was a huge, huge factor in my life. Um, and Pete died young, but it, it left me with, it left me with a, with a trail to follow. And it, it's like anything in life whenever you realize that something is possible, you're able to find a way there to make it happen. But if you have no idea that it's there, it's like the first time someone flew in an airplane. Nobody knew that you could do that. But as soon as it was done uh, by the Wright brothers in Carolina, pretty soon somebody in Germany was flying and then somebody in France was flying something. And it's the same way with, with our lives. When we realize that there is a possibility uh, that you might get to the moon, um, somebody's going to get there. Right. And so Pete provided this trail to the natural world. He was a great student of the natural world. I mean, if he was walking through the woods it wasn't enough for him to know that he was walking through the woods. He wanted to know what the woods were, what grew there, what ate, what grew there, what ate, what ate, what grew there. And so that was all part of the trail that he left, you know, for me to follow. So, so yeah, I think that where there's a chance and this whole mentor thing is thrown around so much these days, uh, I hear I hear, God, I mean, just in the last couple of years, I mean, I hear people say, oh, Lefty was my mentor. Well, mentorship involves much more than being, uh, than tying a great fly and leaving that fly for other people to, that's not being a mentor. Being a mentor implies to me, uh, 
tremendous time spent with somebody teaching them, uh, teaching them things, teaching them things that are spiritual, teaching them life lessons, teaching them. That's what a mentor is to me. So you've been a mentor, I would say, with that description, possibly to Rob, because Rob Fordyce came at a very young age. Uh, and I think you guys were connected, if I'm not wrong. It's that that could be said. But in the case of Rob, it's uh, there has been an unbelievable dynamic there where, you know, he was when he was 13, he was an old guy. I mean, he and I met him when he was around 12 or 13 years old and it has never felt like mentorship to me. There has always been a friendship there. And and I feel honestly in my heart that I've learned as much from Rob as he ever could have learned from me. And he wasn't even trying to teach me. It was just there coming at me. And I, I think in, in the typical mentor relationship, the the mentor starts out here with all the knowledge and all the perspective and as the the person being mentored learns more uh not just from the mentor but from i mean i think part of mentorship should be preparing someone to learn from other sources as well as from yourself but typically over the course of the relationship the, the level of knowledge uh, begins to level out at some point. And if the mentor has really done a great job, soon the mentored excels. excels. And, yeah. and it should be that way. Yeah. If you've done a good job as a mentor, it, it should be that way. And the world is evolving. I mean, my daughter knows things that, that I, I, I would never know. I could could never know. I she's smarter than I am because she's better prepared than I am, and and so you know, people get smarter and they get healthier and they get they live longer. And I mean, it's that's just the way right. the way that it is. But specifically with Rob, I never felt he calls you too. I said, was he a fatherly figure? He said, no, he was more of a, of a brother. Yeah, he said I felt brotherhood with Flip. Yeah, and I originally thought it might have been more of a fatherly. Um, figure, but he said, no, he, hey, we've always been like brothers. Yeah. Well, what about Lefty? I mean, everybody knows Lefty. I mean, he was a pioneer, similar to maybe Joe Brooks, if you will, but he was a big guy like yourself that brought the sport limelight and attention. And when Lefty died, we spoke about how heavy your heart was. What kind of a relationship did you have with Lefty? I would say it was a lot like what Rob describes as as his and my relationship being. I never felt uh, that Lefty was my father, uh, and neither did he ever try to be, although I learned so many, and I know you did too, I mean, so many life lessons from Lefty. Um, he, he, he saw life so differently than other people ever have. And he saw situations in life uh, and was able to somehow give you guidance that didn't feel like guidance at all. 
it it was almost like a wind was blowing you somewhere and you didn't understand it but it was lefty and and uh i mean i i i would discuss things with lefty that that i could never discuss with anybody else i, I just could there's no way i could expose myself in that way um to anybody but lefty and he never made it feel like I was being exposed. It was just, I mean, it was his gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and other people felt it in in their brushes with him. I mean, they would see him at a at ICAST, or they would see him at a show, a retail show in Massachusetts somewhere, and they would feel. Like they had known Lefty forever and that Lefty helped them with this or Lefty taught them that. And they spent an hour with him or less. But his magic was that he could leave you feeling like he helped you, like he mentored you in an hour. Right. Um, Even brushing up against him. And, I mean, I, I hear it over and over and over and over again. Stories from people who rushed up against Lefty, but felt like they he had been part of their life. A- a- amazing. But you know what, Flip? I think a lot of us feel the same about you. Exactly. I mean, uh, seriously, um, I had been a fisherman my whole life. I grew up in the rivers of Colorado as a skier uh, in the winter, a fisherman in the summer. And I think Nikki can attest to this. I used to get him out of bed on a Sunday morning oh, and run, run to the TV. You know, when he was a little kid, I said, Walker's K is coming on and the opening line, you know, where the fish are big and the adventures are wild or whatever. And you were running in your skiff. I, I don't think I'd seen a saltwater fish yet. He was like a kid running to the Disney but, channel. But I, among many, many others, uh, millions, the world re- over, you brought us to this, um genre and your your storytelling uh is as big i think as it is your hunting and fishing have you always been a storyteller and tell me about walker's k and your relationship with storytelling and fishing and bringing the world this audience to this this genre if you will i i had a tv show before walker's k it was um it was called um, the Saltwater Angler, and it was only around for a couple of years. Um, but it was it it was all of my friends. In other words, I I did shows with Lefty, and I did shows with Jose, and I did shows with Rob, and I did shows with the people that you know that I was close to, and. The central theme of those shows was the relationships and the things that you mentioned, Nick, earlier uh, that happened in a small skiff. And those were the things that had never been, I mean, an outdoor program prior to that was the only one was really the American Sportsman, which was a great show narrated by, by uh, Kurt Gowdy wonderfully done production 
but it was someone from the outdoors teamed up with a movie actor right uh or a ballet dancer or someone from some other universe that was brought into the natural world and had no touchstones had no connection other than celebrity and so it was a great program wonderfully well received and popular i always felt because it was the only thing there there really was nothing else and so i i thought that if we could do a show that featured the things that brought real people together and feature those interactions in a 20-minute format on television, that people would relate to it. Well, the Saltwater Angler Show tried to do that, but we were on a small little network uh, that was just starting out and so people were never really exposed to it. And at that time, Diane was a flight attendant for Pan Am. And she was on a flight to South America. And as they left Miami, a young man got on the plane with a fly rod tube. And he was sitting in first class. And Diane was working in first class. And said, hey, Rand, where are you going with a fly rod tube? And he goes, how do you know it's a fly rod? And she goes, and so he was going to fish trout in the Andes somewhere. They developed mechanical problems, and they had to lay over somewhere along the way in some country. I can't remember. And so Diane invited this guy to have supper with the crew, and and uh, he was a really nice young man, and, and so they became friendly. And when they got the problem fixed with the airplane, he went on to his fishing destination. And then Diane came home, went out on another flight, and then on her way home after that, he was on that flight again. And so they connected again. And she gave, she goes, at some point told him, my husband is a guide, a fly fishing guide in the Keys, and... She gives him my card, and nothing ever happened. But months later, he was watching television somewhere and saw me on a show. And I'm not sure what it was because I had done a bunch of the American sportsman shows as a camera boat, and I was even on some of them with different people. Uh, and so somehow he saw me on television. He went, wait a minute, that's the husband of that guy that that girl that I so he called me introduces himself his dad had invented and held every international patent and license on the aerosol spray valve and they owned Walker's K and he they were interested in hiring me to go over there spend some time and establish whether or not they had a sufficient bone fishery there to offer it as part of what Walker's was about. And so, sure enough, I went over and they, first of all, flew me all around the islands there 
looking at the flats, and then we went out on skiff, and there were bonefish, plenty of bonefish. And then they wanted to build a fleet of bonefish skiffs. They wanted a, a half a dozen skiffs. So they hired me to oversee the building design and oversee the building of these skiffs, which I did. And then when the skiffs were finished, we took them over to Walker's. And I contacted five guys, five guides that I was friendly with, Dozer and Rob and... and uh, uh, Jose, maybe? Jose. And remember Joe Laprie? I know. Yes, I do know Joe. And Joe and uh, a couple other guys. And so we made a we made we made this arrangement with walkers where these guys could use the skiffs bring their customers over they would stay at walkers in the hotel the guides could use the skiffs and take these guys but it was really amazing i mean we had we had really good skiffs we had a place to take our customers where they could stay and eat and they could fly right there to the island perfect and and for several years we had a, an unbelievable thing going on there had it dialed but in the process um i got to talking the, the i got to talking with some of the producers of the american sportsman and the outdoor life series which which was a predecessor which followed the american sportsman and i was talking about this idea that i had about no celebrities and really doing these thoughtful shows with original music and authentic stuff yeah and it resonated with them and so we needed a financial partner so we went to the fellow who owned walkers and uh the idea that we pitched to him was that walkers would become the lyrical jumping off point for every episode in the standard opening of the show right we might be fishing in Costa Rica for that episode or in Midway Island or wherever it was we were going. But the feeling was that we left from walkers, this magical Island in the Bahamas where, and, and he liked the idea. So, and, and you've been in the television show business. And so, you know, you know what it's like in a way this was so early on in outdoor television, we didn't have any other, there were no other shows. No barometer. There, there, was, there were no other shows. Right. And there was no competition for sponsorship. And because there was no competition for sponsorship, the sponsors didn't have this incredible power that forced you to to make infomercials with their products on right. the air so you could actually produce a show that was thrilling, exciting, had wonderful production values, and didn't keep throwing things in your face commercially. Right. And so it was before videotape. We were, we were using actual film. Right. Uh, and real sound equipment. And so it had the feel of... A movie. 
of a theatrical piece. Yeah. And it had the sound quality. And it did not have this infomercialistic feel to it. And so, I mean, that it was successful is understandable because there there wasn't any competition really, number one. It had all the things that I just mentioned. But what it had that nothing else had up to that point was the feeling in that little skiff. Nobody had ever explored that before. And we not only explored it, we exploited it because it was wonderful. And people immediately recognized it because everyone has a fishing buddy. So when I did a show with Stu Apt, who was a wonderful buddy and hero of mine, all those feelings in that little skiff were there. I mean, you didn't have to stir anything. They came to the surface all on their own. And people recognized that. And the music was original music. It wasn't this canned, uh, my brother and my cousin wrote all the music and performed it uh, for the show. And so they were able to craft every note to what was actually going on. And so there, there were a lot of things brought to bear. The, the, the couple of guys that were cameramen for that show all through its 16-year life were incredibly talented. And the sound recordist that was was there through the whole thing was brilliant. I mean, not only at what he did, but he could he could see things that could be added to the production value of the show, and he could bring in. I didn't know anything about that stuff. I was it was a wonderful opportunity for me to learn uh, watching these guys. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. I mean, I I brought very little to the thing, and particularly in the beginning, except that I knew where to go fishing. And the writing was all you? No. In the beginning, the writing was somebody else uh, from whom I learned a, a ton of stuff. But as it evolved, uh, you know, we started out with a narrator somebody narrating the show and it was his voice was so generic it 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 hurt me and so i got together with everybody i said we can't this doesn't work and so they go who do you you know who do you think would be would be better at this well there was a guy who was a singer uh, in Nashville, you probably don't remember him. He he was popular at one time, very popular, but he he died early on. His name was Hoyt Axton. Yes, I remember. I know that name. Well, he had a speaking voice that was, and this little West Virginia kind of twang. His mother was a very big time songwriter in Nashville she wrote I mean 
blue suede shoes or jailhouse rock or mm. something. I mean, so yeah, that Axton name is very yeah, prevalent. Her name was May Axton. She was anyway. I loved his voice, so my brother and I and uh, Pat Smith went to Nashville to meet with him. We had just done the pilot for Walker's K. We went to his studio in Nashville and we showed him. We brought a script that Pat had written. We brought it for him to look at and we were trying to make a deal with him to narrate. And he had a screen and we put the the video up on his screen and he's, he's watching it. He's watching it. And you remember the Little short shorts that we all used to wear. Especially to Jose, because he had big, big muscular. <laughs> we, well, we all legs. used to wear these little, <laughs> little shorts and a t-shirt, yeah. you know. And so I'm standing on a cooler, and Dozer is pulling me in the Everglades, and we're tarpon fishing for big fish in the backcountry. And Do- Dozer's John Donnell. Just John so Donnell, yeah. yeah. So John is pulling me, and and he's watching this video and. All at once, he stops it, and it was quiet in the room, and he stops it, and he, you see him looking at it, he turned to me, he goes, Flip, he goes, are those your legs, or are you standing on a chicken? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, he agreed, after he and my brother went off somewhere in the studio to smoke pot, he agreed to narrate the the show. So in the beginning, Hoyt was was narrating the show but he developed heart problems and and couldn't do it any longer and we we were sort of stuck it happened suddenly and so it was just like what are we going to do you know let's uh anyway so i sort of started doing it at that point right um and then uh i started writing later on Uh, and doing the voiceover work as well and doing the voiceover and and uh then in in subsequent shows that i that i did uh i did the writing and the and the voiceover and um it it worked it worked for for those shows today i i would hate to be in that business today with all of the cutthroat it's too cutthroat yeah, and the, the, the sponsors drive the shows right. creatively. All the billboards right. and all the little, yeah, yeah it's, it's, what you're uh, saying. Are you glad to be out of that world? I mean, I, I would love to be, I would love but, to. But to do it your way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there still are opportunities here and there to do that. But I think really what's, what's on the horizon as I see it is the internet uh, that'll allow us to get back to uh, the traditional values of a show of an outdoor show. I think the, the with freedom, yeah, and I think uh, the YouTube right is probably one of the wonderful platforms where that can happen, and you can have at least at this point complete creative control over what happens, and the time by format of network television today is horribly broken. Mm -hmm. I I don't see how that can continue to work and provide good entertainment. And I think people, as they get 
more intelligent, <clears throat> begin to see that these things are infomercials. I mean, it's it's painful to watch them. Was um, was your storytelling a byproduct of your adventures and having fun fishing and hunting, or did you always want to be a storyteller and 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 bring an audience to your world? And I think we're all products of of what we surround ourselves with, and I, I think the uh, the ability to share is is a skill that we somehow have whether we whether we accumulate it whether we're born with it who knows um, but sh sharing uh, I, I think we all have ways that we share things yeah and I think you know, when you have a vehicle as powerful as television to allow you to share. But I think today, television's not as powerful as... You. I have a granddaughter who's 12 years old, very, very bright. She doesn't watch television at all. It's not that it's not available to her. It is. It's there. She sure. could watch it if she wants to. She watches YouTube. I know people that don't have cable. Yeah. She watches YouTube. Her friends have YouTube channels. Right. They're 12 years old. Right. She doesn't. But, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a different. It's free. It's easy to use. Anyone can upload it. You know, it's, it's out there. Let's go back, if you don't mind, um, to your youth in the fact that today's youth very rarely are outdoors doing the things that you and I did when we were growing up and, and luckily for Nikki as well. But uh, talking to Chico is Chico and you and Norman Duncan, um, your formative years before college. What was that like growing up in Miami with these buddies and talking about oh. bridge lines and how important were bridges uh, for your access to fish? Because you didn't have boats and pulling air mattresses for tarp. And tell me, tell me about that that so era. Somebody filled you in pretty well <laughs> with the air mattresses and. I want to hear about that pulling an air mattress for tarpon. We were, we were. Uh, I mean, there were four of us who were like a little gang. Uh, and it started pretty much in the late 50s. Chico I met in 59, right when he came from Cuba. I mean, immediately. And so from 59 to this day, uh, Chico and I are still pards. And our lives have had so many crazy parallels uh, you know, we, we fished through high school into college and then none of us had any money. So we were all working during the day. We had daytime jobs and we were going to the university of Miami at night and fishing whenever we could day or night. And when Chico graduated, Chico became the first budget director of Burger King when Burger King was first opening their doors, they hired Chico. And then I went to work in a bank. And so both of us were sort of in financial situations. Then Chico married a flight attendant 
as uh, did you. I married a flight attendant. Uh, we both left the corporate world, uh, and Chico began commercially tying and writing articles about fishing and photography. And I became a guide uh, with a couple of year stint as a, as a shop owner. I started a, an outdoor store that was wonderfully successful, but locked me in during the times of the year that I wanted most to be outside. Uh, so, but then, so we, we both left Chico and I became a guide and Chico was freelance writer and photographer. And then Chico and I both started doing hosted trips around the world. And, uh, we've, we've been, you know, best friends through, through this whole thing. I mean, a lifetime, a whole lifetime. But you guys pretty much pioneered, I think, a lot of the, the growing era of the sophisticated saltwater fly fishing world, if I'm not mistaken. We were lucky. We were lucky, Andy. We, we were spinning was just coming to the United States from Europe. There were people here, they knew what a plug rod was. Right. But spinning. Really? Oh, they did not exist. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, no, we fished. We fished with plug rod. Monofilament? No monofilament. There was no monofilament. Wasn't didn't exist. So what'd you use? Linen and and Dacron. And when spinning came, that's when monofilament came. And we we looked at monofilament. We laughed. We went, you well, this is it stretches. It's ridiculous. You can't even tie knots in it. You could see right through it. Who who wants this stuff? It's funny because it went full circle. Because now it's back to braid. Sadly, I have a an opinion on that. But anyway, so we were there for that, just right. by the the wonderful accident of the timing of our birth. Right, we were there, and saltwater fly fishing existed at some minuscule level. There were some very wealthy people who who were beginning to bonefish with fly rods, but nobody, I mean, the thought of catching an amberjack on a fly rod, I mean, right. oh, my question. God. I mean, it, 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 the thought. It wasn't possible. It didn't exist. The thought didn't exist. A kingfish, are you kidding me? A mackerel? A marlin? Right. Get out. Yeah. So we were there. I mean, yeah. when all of this stuff started fomenting, we were there, we were young, we were excited about it, and so we were sucked up into this, and and we did not have boats. So tell me about the air mattress. The air mattress was our... Your boat. It was our air was boat. boat. It was our boat. We actually... I mean, it's hard for me to believe that we did stuff like this, but we would... <laughs> paddle we would we had these little tackle boxes and we were fanatics about uh, this two pound test monofilament came to to the united states two pound test and for some reason that's all we wanted to do was two pound test monofilament we would take two spinning rods little light rods that we built ourselves 
Uh, there was a reel that we loved to use for two-pound test. It was called an Alcedo Micron. It was from Italy. And we modified them heavily, took the bales off, and, and worked on the drags. Uh, and we would replace the factory drags with little leather washers that we would marinate in needs foot oil and graphite. And that was our secret deal. And we would, we would load up our air mattresses and paddle out into these, I mean, stupid, dangerous, crazy locations. Like where, like where were you? Well, Miami area. Yeah, but well, and the keys, but it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. Uh, oh my gosh in miami and on a and, fallen tide you could have been in the bahamas pretty yeah, fast. I mean, it was it was nothing for us to do that nor there was another cut to the south called norris cut right where we could hook these impossible to land snook and big jack 20 30 pound jacks and we're trying to catch them on two pound on a mattress on a mattress which the mattress <laughs> was actually we'd paddle to bonefish flats on that mattress Stake the stake the uh, well not stake but we would plug it. Uh, well, we would drop a it. we would drop a weight right. that was tied on to the mattress, mattress and it would just stay there and we would get off on we'll these go. flats and wade for bonefish, and there was a little quarter ounce jig called the Hampson bucktail. We would use those Hampson bucktails. What was fishing like back then? Indescribable. I mean the the volume of fish. All species of Biscayne Bay. God, it's just hard to the the trout and redfish in Biscayne Bay, and the pompano and tarpon and the the wintertime migration of mackerel through Biscayne Bay was it was epic. Acres of fish. It was indescribable by today's standards, and the grasses. Uh, that you waded in, uh, and the f- shrimp and crabs and life everywhere. It, it was there. There's no frame of reference now. I mean, you look at those same flats today. There's nothing there. It's a there's desert. Nothing there. There's a few, but it is for the most part a desert. So very hard to describe. But for a kid growing up, the air mattress was freedom. It let us get. Across expanses, at, we, we crossed from the west shore of Biscayne Bay out to the cuts, out to Soldier Key. Was, <laughs> and I mean, if you ever got a, a hole in that thing, you would have been, you would have been uh, dog paddling home with a rod in your mouth. But it didn't, it, it, we would have done it. Yeah. Even we, we would have just dog paddled home. It was, <laughs> it was nothing. We never were fearful of striking a hole in an air. We, it, it was a distinct possibility. We used to have, I don't know if you can remember this, but South Florida had a population of long spine sea urchins. Sea urchins with long black spines about this long. And they were everywhere. I mean, you couldn't walk on a flat without getting poked. Yeah. I mean, they were everywhere. And then there were short spine sea urchins as well. You know, the the ones that have the short green spines. But... I mean, we used to we used to have a net, and we'd fill it with carefully with these long spine and short spine sea urchins. We'd fill up a whole net like this, 
And then, you know what a billy club is? Mm-hmm. Wooden billy? We would take a billy and just smash them, and we would drift across a flat, towing this sack of smashed up sea urchins, and then we would stop over a light-colored area. Chum. up current, And stuff would just permit. They smell a sea urchin. They're coming. Really? Oh, they're coming. They'll they'll attack your net. So that's what fishing was. It was not, are we going to have a good day? What are we going to do with this good day? You know, how is it going to unfold? Because it's going to be a good day. In the wintertime, bluefish and pompano used to come into Biscayne Bay. You, you just couldn't stop catching them. So where do you fish now? I mean, obviously, those days are gone. I mean, we were talking to Tom Evans here recently about the early years of home Asasa. And I would think a spike has been driven into your heart with this loss. And obviously, it's evolution and in time. Where do you go to find your fishing freedom and to experience that type of excitement again? Well, it's gone from Florida. I mean, it's gone from any part of Florida. Um, I still, I still take Diane to Mosquito Lagoon, you know, and we we catch a redfish. It's a big deal, you know. She loves to catch trout. You know, there's still some trout there. She'll catch a trout, but it's those fishing days are are a memory and honestly the bahamas the the usual haunts in the bahamas experiencing much the same situation for for other reasons there but here i mean and this opens up a whole right the next chapter a whole litany of of questions but we have uh allowed we have allowed Florida to be taken away from us, uh, the natural world. Um, we've, we've allowed the life's blood of Florida, which is water, sweet water, to become almost non-existent. And so the, the, the fix for all of our water problems is clean, sweet water. Where is it going to come from? I mean... We have to fight. We have to fight. We have to be part of the fight. We have to give everything we have to to trying to fix things. But where is this water going to come from? Where are we going to get this in the face of, of all the people coming to Florida every day, um, to the incredible development that we see uh, during good upturns of the economy? I mean, right now, driving up here from your home, mm-hmm. I mean, I'll bet you that if you didn't drive past a hundred new springing developments coming up out of the ground, um, they need water. Is it realistic that South Florida will ever see fresh water again? Uh, Florida Bay? Where will it come from? Right. How do we clean what we have? It isn't. Where will it come from? Where will... The water that we need to fix the problem, where will it come from? Uh, all these people that are building along the I-95 corridor that you followed to come up here, 
They need water. They need to flush their toilets. They need their golf courses green. Um, they need to wash their SUVs. How are you fighting this fight? Well, you know, there, there are wonderful patriots in organizations like Bull Sugar and Captains for Clean Water uh, that are at the point of the spear. And then there are other organizations that should be that aren't, that are busy having banquets. But the, the key to it all, I think the, the, the last tool that we have in our quiver is awareness. People that move here are unaware of the problem. They're unaware of what we're trying to save. They don't, they don't know what we're trying to save. Uh, they don't know what Florida Bay is or what it was. They can't. Even the scientists that are trying to help us don't know what it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are so far from knowing what it was. Uh, and I talk to a lot of them uh, in the course of the fight. Um, and I listen to what their scientific opinions are and what they're based on um, is far from what we had. Um so it's it's going to be it's going to be a miserable tough battle to hold on to what we have in terms of restoring it. Right. You can't push that boulder over the hill. I don't know. I I, I hope I'm so wrong about that, and it's not going to affect my pushing. Yeah. I'm going to push as hard as I can push, and and swing whatever tool I can, but. But I, I have to realistically wonder where the, I mean, the, the fix is simple, clean water. Yeah. And where, unfortunately, where, golf where is, courses are not going to be stopped being built. The farms, the, the sugar issues. The communities, the, the traffic well, and the. The sugar the industry is a temporary phenomenon. Right. Um, why we allow it to exist is a mystery. Why we allow a couple of families to jeopardize all of South Florida in terms of water when they have made billions of dollars. I mean, isn't it enough? I mean, haven't they made enough? Why? It's, it belongs to us. Why do we allow them to do that? At some point, it should be enough. It should have been enough long ago but they're subsidized by the state and they're subsidized by the federal government and they're allowed to foul the whole bottom of florida and the everglades national park they're allowed to do that so if we stopped them somehow tomorrow they would take all that land that's in sugar now and they would develop it. Right. Which would be maybe worse. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, at least now you're dealing with a couple of families. What if it were developed and you had thousands and thousands of dwellings? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a great area of Florida. I mean, if it were developed, it would develop. Um, 
It's near both coasts. It's near Lake Okeechobee. Uh, it's near Miami and Fort Lauderdale. It will develop. I mean, unless the state and the federal government said, okay, that's enough. We condemn all this land. Um, here's reasonable compensation based on its value and based on what you've taken away from the state of Florida. Right. In the history of your stewardship of this land or lack of stewardship. Un- unless it becomes public land, unless it becomes Florida, how will we ever be able to generate? To use it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I get it. And what's the likelihood that that's going to happen? Right. We can't even get them to stop polluting. Right. Can we change the subject? I now? wish we would. <laughs> Tell me about your stick bow and your arrows. Um, I, I'm a fly tire. Right. I'm not a great one like Chico um, or Borski or Chacon or those guys. But, but I get a lot of satisfaction from tying my own flies and having fish stumble across them and sometimes eat them. And so it's sort of the same with, with arrows. Uh, I, I like to shoot wooden arrows. They're not as straight. Yeah. They're not as consistent. <clears throat> but they're cool. But, you know, you, we were talking or speaking earlier about the difference between our relationships with bows and arrows. Nikki and I elk hunt, and we have compound bows. But how you describe being an archer was fascinating yeah well it's just it's just another way to i mean the wonderful thing is all of us are in the woods and in the mountains and gasping for air and uh carrying heavy loads out of the woods and i mean so we're we're brothers there um your tools are different but the calling is the same uh I, I told you, I have a compound bow, and I marvel at how it works and how amazing it is as a tool. Uh, and I get all that. I appreciate all that, and I enjoy shooting it. And I enjoy seeing all my arrows in a tightly hole this hole. bag big. Uh, and I, I have hunted with it and had roaring success but in in the course of that success i've never felt like an archer Uh, i consider it a marvelous device i don't consider it a bow uh, and i don't consider those bolts and things arrows uh, as wonderful as they are and they are they're just not uh they eliminate the need to to be a hunter at your very, 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 very best. And it's when when a true archer kills a game animal, it's because he was a hunter, not so much an archer. Uh, the ethical distances are so much shorter. 
it brings you so much more closely in touch with all of the things in the natural world that will allow you to get that close to an animal, a wild animal. So that aspect of it is somehow gone from the, from the compound bow. But there are hundreds of other things about it that are charming and that get you in the woods and, and expose you to things. And I think that anything that gets us there uh, is a good thing. Um, at a personal level, I'd love to see an archery season ahead of all that other seasons that was just for, for real archery, even if it's 20 or 30 days long, but just the real old time Sticks. archery season, mm -hmm. you know, for people who are archers and, and, and then everybody else is. Can have at it. Yeah. Uh, Florida has now, in its wisdom, uh, decided that you can use crossbows as well in the archery season. So you can use regular bow and arrow, compound bows, crossbows. Yeah. So I have lots of friends that, that are compound archers that now realize they can kill more and more easily and further with a crossbow than they can with a compound. So all of them are buying compound or crossbows. Right. They're all going to crossbows because they can kill more things. Which have a rifle scope on it. They all have rifle scopes on them. Right. And it's legal in archery season. It's a rifle with an arrow. So yeah. so it's 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 not about being in the woods. It is to some degree, but for those people it's about striking the life out of something right. i get that uh i do the same thing but in a different way yeah and and i don't have to kill something every day or every time i enjoy the hunting part of it and the being there part of it and the quiet part of it and carrying something that's light and that some other humanoid made uh and spent time and crafted himself right. and to your question about the arrows um i fletch them with uh turkey feathers that that either i killed or friends killed somebody that i know killed these turkeys to fletch these arrows with and uh over the years i've known uh, a handful of really super talented aerosmiths make the shafts and spine the shafts and paint the shafts and fletch the the fletchings and actually burn i mean andy ponce the guy that makes these arrows i mean he actually made a feather burner that burns every one of these feathers exactly the same way and then wow. and then he when he glues the feathers on he glues them on helically can you see how yeah, they yeah for sure they, so see they a, spin it a compound arrow or a crossbow bolt everything is square and it shoots straight this thing has to spin right to correct itself when you shoot this arrow it goes around the riser of the bow it actually bends if you could see it in slow motion it bends around the bow and these feathers have to Align it. Correct it right. as it goes toward the target. Um, and I love these old 
simple broadheads that I file myself with a right. fish hook file. Right. I, I haven't done these yet, uh, but. Um, you know what I found also, Flip, is when you're in the woods, your your being becomes really uh, on edge, if you will, with your ears and your the feeling you have with your your feet on the on the forest floor. Your senses come alive. And, yeah, very well said. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens. Your senses yeah. Yeah. come alive. These are senses that we don't use in everyday life. Right, and. The moment you're transported to the natural world, things come back to you unbidden uh, that, I mean, I, I'm sure at one point we could actually smell things. Right. Uh, oh, for sure. Elk. You get downwind of elk. What about your relationship with turkey calling? I mean, I know how wife Nikki and I feel about, you know, speaking with, with elk. Isn't that the, just the most amazing thing ever to be speaking with an animal? It actually is. It actually is. And I'm so lucky. Every morning, I have turkeys here. I have turkeys that roost in this cypress island right here beside the house. Is that right? So I come out here at daylight, just before daylight, with coffee. And I sit right where you found me this morning. And I listen all year long to what the turkeys say. I hear what they say in the tree. I hear what they say just before they fall down or fly down. I hear what they say when they hit the ground, gather up. They have a language just like we have. Uh, you can make turkey sounds with a turkey call or elk sounds with an elk call that elks actually make or turkeys sure. actually make. But if you make them at the wrong time... <laughs> They're work. inappropriate, right. and they alert elk and turkeys and whitetails. They have a language, too, and they, have, they speak. And so the key is learning how to make the sounds and using them appropriately because it doesn't help to be the best elk caller in the world and make, them, make those calls at inappropriate times um, and at inappropriate volumes. I remember I used to scream at elk. You know, I mean, you're, you're talking about that right now. When I was first learning how to cow call, I used to think that the estridge call could be used a little bit more aggressively than I thought. So I used to like demand that bull to come to me. It didn't work so well. <laughs> there was no feel involved. Right. Well, it was almost right. like, you know what, like the elk you killed last year. Okay, so... Nikki and I, I was, I was up in, uh, at an event, and Nikki calls on a Friday evening. I just arrived at the hotel. He said, Dad, I called in a big six-by tonight, and I, I almost got him, almost got the shot. And very macho-like, I said, well, don't go in there tomorrow night. We'll go in there on Sunday, and we'll go kill him, you know? But that was like, kind of like the right thing to say as a dad. I get back into Aspen. I'm tired, and we hike in there an hour and a half. And we go to the spot where Nikki had called this animal in on that Friday evening. And I made a couple, you know, locator calls and there was nothing. So we moved about four or 500 yards away and we heard this elk bugle. And I said, Nick, knock an arrow, go behind that tree. I had a, uh, uh, a 3D elk cow uh, decoy. I set that up and I got back and I made one little soft cow call. Yeah. 
and he screams again. He can hear that he's coming. And pretty soon, here comes a cow around the corner, and she comes right over to me. They know, they know exactly where, you, where are. you are. Exactly. Their GPS is unbelievable. Exactly. They can course sound. Turkey's the Pinpoint. same. Turkey's the same. Right. Yeah. They can course a sound to its exact location. Exactly right. It's what keeps them alive. Yeah. And it was amazing in that I'm starting to get the feel of how to do this. I mean, we've killed a few elk, you know. Nikki's gotten six now, and I've killed a few. And and pretty soon, I'm starting to understand the timing and the sensitivity, as you just mentioned. And I thought, he knows where I am, even though I only made one soft little, yeah, right? And pretty soon, here comes the bull. I see him at the corner, and he gets hung up. He's kind of waiting. He's got some trepidation here. And... A nice big bull and i can see nikki over there and i'm just quiet and quiet i know he's thinking come on dad come on let he, it out no yeah. because the cow the cow was already down she, towards she, you she so i know down. the bull was coming but yeah, it, was, he was it just coming. took for you know during the moment it was like slow motion i was like come on 45 but seconds was, felt like three days watching it unravel it was just yeah unbelievable and then i gave one more soft little whisper and here he comes and i look over and nikki i see him i see him range find the elk and I get my binoculars out and I'm looking at the elk and he's coming on a dime right to me. And all of a sudden I heard the bow release and I heard the arrow hit him. Thwap, thwap, you know, big, big hit. Boom, like this. And this elk runs down about 40 yards and stops. It gets all hunched up and starts Did, did you cow call to him at, at, after he was struck? No, because you ever do that? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. For, oh, actually, we do do that. Yeah, just and to I calm did. down the it's situation. Just let him know yeah. that we are. He maybe got hit by a, a, a an Stick. antler yeah. or something, you know. But I do uh, always cow call, you know. And but this thing ran down so fast and stopped right away. I didn't have to do much of that. And all of a sudden, he did a face plant. And I look over, and I got my hands over my head, and I wanted to scream as loud as I could, but I knew better. And I'm looking at Nikki. I was like, Nikki. Dad, calm down. Jesus. <laughs> the animal's passing I, I right now. I, 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 could, I could see him. You could hear him. You know, the life is leaving the animal. It's a sad thing, but also, too. It's very sad, but there's so much hard work that goes into it. And so when you finally harvest this animal. Yeah, when that moment finally comes, it's like, oh, my gosh just a outpour of emotions you know and yeah and i mean it's hard what do you what do you think those emotions are where do you think they came from myself but i mean in in its truest form our ancestors i mean i I don't know we're hunters and gatherers yeah at the base of it yeah at one point in our evolutionary process that moment was a moment of sustenance. I mean, right. it meant that you were going to live another month. Right. I mean, it wasn't... Food on the table. Yeah. I mean, it was necessary um, to your existence and the existence of your clan. And I don't I don't think that goes away out of your DNA. No. Sure. I agree with I that. I think that there are millions of people who never experience it never experience it but but for those who do i I think it's 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 so deeply implanted that it is just like like you say i don't know 
I don't know where that that comes from, but you do know it. It well at my age of sixty six, after fourteen, fifteen knee operations and a back fusion and broken necks and backs, for me. Uh, I was ecstatic, not only that we were successful, but I didn't have to climb my ass back up those hills for another, you know, two or three weeks. But you had to pack that thing out of there. Yeah, we did. We didn't get back to the truck until about 1.30 that morning. It was two trips back in the So next let day. me ask you, when, when you kill an elk at altitude like that, right. and you get through all the intellectual celebration of of the moment for whatever it means to you at that moment. Now you're faced with packing that animal out. The work begins. But yeah. do you look at that as the work begins or do you feel like this is just the payoff? Both. It, yeah. I feel both. He killed an elk about four years ago and it took us two days to get the elk to the tent and the tent was four miles from the truck. That was a that was a real big undertaking. And we put the animal in the creek, you know, with the waterproof bags, and we had to ferry it to the to the truck. And the next year I'd have back fusion. And I think that was a big part of of that operation. But I think that it's it's all encompassing. It's yeah, yes, the work begins, but we've already worked our asses off to, to get that animal. Because most likely we've been already, you know, hiking up to 11,000 feet for so many days and sleeping on a hard, cold ground in a sleeping bag for four or five or six nights. And you know what it's like purifying your water and eating, you know, freeze-dried food. That's a part of the process and the journey that makes us whole. It's miserable, but it's the most exciting, most most wonderful thing I've ever experienced. But besides pulling my bow back or anyone pulling their bow back and, you know, making that moment count, once that animal's expired and you and you go in in, the, in there and, and quarter them out and you get your tenderloins and back straps, that's my favorite part. I love it. And I don't know if it brings me back to my natural state or what, but I just love it. And, and having clean, organic, high country meat in the freezer, oh, my God, I live for that. How about the sound of a sharp knife? How do you cutting describe the hide out. How do you just the sound of the cutting of that that blade? How do you describe something like that to somebody who sits they, in an office all the time? They will never get it. It's like speaking to a turkey and talking to it and trying to pull that animal in. And the goosebumps on the bottom of your feet. The things that, that you that you learn and take for granted in situations like that when the animal's down um, there's a certain behavior that you should employ at the, at those times. Uh, there are certain things that you do you don't even think of. You cut the hide from the inside so that the hair doesn't crack and right. fall all over the meat. Right. Uh, things that you just take for granted from experience doing this stuff that you can't explain this stuff to. And the only way you can pass it along is to somebody who's beside you at that moment. And lucky for me, it was my son. Now, there are videos. I mean, there are 
seminars. There are YouTube productions that tell you how to do how to do these things. You used to have to learn them from a mentor, mm-hmm. and you ha- used to have to learn them from being there. Right. But theoretically, someone could on their iPhone become a pretty fair elk hunter without ever having climbed up the side of a mountain. Yeah. Kind they, of a kind of a strange thing they to think can about. Get they there, they would know what to do, but, but they wouldn't but, get them yeah. very well, especially in public. You have land. to do it to become great. That's true. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Well, Flip, after all these years uh, of being the outdoorsman and fisherman and what you've done and uh, contributing to the sport and telling your stories, you were inducted into the IGFA Fishing Hall of Fame, summarizing such a, a great career. Uh, how... how how do you feel about that? How did you feel about that? And what does that mean to you now? Well, it's, it's the, it's the only lifetime barometer of achievement in this, in that side of the outdoor world, the IGFA hall of fame. I mean, it's, it's, I guess, like the baseball hall of fame or the skiing hall of fame, or, I mean, it's, it's the ultimate recognition, I suppose, of, of life's work. And so to be recognized for anything is gratifying. Uh, And IGFA hall of fame is the ultimate recognition in this part of our world. And so it was very, very, very meaningful to me. And, it was also meaningful to me to be inducted when I was, along with Tom. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Evans. Yeah, with yeah. with Tom Evans. Yeah. Um, and Rip Cunningham. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people that I people that I've known all through the process, and people who have made contributions, uh, certainly similar or more or better than my own, whatever. But they were recognized at the same time. Uh, and so it wasn't like I was recognized along with somebody who in the 1800s mm-hmm. caught the first human. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was nice from that standpoint. And, and another thing that was very, very nice about it was that people who had been inducted before me were there. Uh, Lefty uh, and Steve Huff right. um, and you know people that have been part of my life uh, f- for all those all those years uh, Peter Wright uh, just all, all those people were there that night and so it, it was a it was a marvelously special time for me Uh it was weird. I, honestly, I could hardly, I had, I could hardly walk or stand that night. I had just had heart surgery a couple of weeks before that. I mean, I could barely walk. I could barely breathe. Uh, and so, <laughs> I mean, I never really, I never thought, I never thought I would ever be inducted, number one, but number two, when it was a reality i never thought i was going to be able to and everybody wanted to hug me (laughs) that night and i wanted to hug them too and the pain 
I mean, I just can't even, I mean, you've had surgery, so you know what post-surgical pain is, but I never, I never thought I was going to make it through that night. And afterwards, uh, Diane had to drive home. I couldn't, I mean, I was shot down for days physically just from the effort uh, of doing the thing. It was the first thing after that surgery that I had been social. Well, it was the first, I mean, I had no no business being there. Yeah. Well, congratulations. (laughs) And and, and again, thank you so much for allowing Nikki and I to come into your world and, your world. Oh, thank you. It's always special to hang with you. Your world, guys. I could sit with Flip in his garage for a month and just listen. Listen to his poetic justice and reason and be just as excited about his last sentence as I was the first. I just love this cat. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.